Welcome to the ENA Podcast with your host, Dan Campana. This is the ENA Podcast, and this is Dan Campana, the Director of Communications with the Emergency Nurses Association, welcoming you to our latest episode. Today, we'll talk a little bit about uh, sickle cell and its relationship to the ED and what happens at times when patients come in uh, with sickle cell and how their treatment can go. And uh, obviously, there's a lot of uh, room for improvement in terms of how those patients are being treated. And ENA uh, and its members have been at the forefront of trying to create more opportunities for education to really uh, overcome some of those obstacles and certainly doing that in partnership with a number of other organizations as well. But today, we're going to talk with Paula Tanabi, who uh, has been very active on the ENA side uh, from resolutions to helping uh, with partnerships to really hone in on you know the best recommendations and some things that ENA and emergency nurses need to know. So, Paula, welcome to the ENA podcast. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for having me and a big thanks to ENA. I'm happy to have this opportunity today. Well, Paula, let's start right from the, you know, from your standpoint, a little bit of your background uh, as an emergency nurse, and, and certainly your interest uh, in the in the realm of sickle cell disease, and certainly some of the the work you've done, uh, you know, to help support ENA's efforts in that regard. Sure. So I really am a hardcore ER nurse at, at my core, and spent 25 years as an ER nurse um, bedside in some capacity, either as staff, and then I was a sickle cell, or I'm sorry, I was an emergency department clinical nurse specialist for seven years. Um, and really during that time, I also ended up pursuing a PhD, and I was really interested in pain management in the emergency department. And over the years, I became more and more interested in the care of sickle cell because they have acute painful crises called vasoclusive crises or episodes <clears throat> that bring them to the ER and they need a lot of pain management. Um, and this was kind of in the 90s. And the 90s was when the Joint Commission um, began being very interested in pain management and it was a decade of pain control. So we were doing a lot of things to try to improve and treat pain um, and never for sickle cell. And there was really always um, such bias towards these individuals. And even myself, I really didn't know that much about it. And so I had the opportunity then to get some um, a PhD and do some research in my own research and get funding. And it, I took a total career shift really and became all sickle cell and researcher and, you know, really investigating ways to improve care of sickle cell in the emergency department. The big thing that we're here to talk about is really the need for ongoing education around sickle cell disease for ED nurses and, and the ED in general. Uh, why don't you start with what have been the obstacles and you talk about really what's gone on in your work for the last, you know, 25, 30 years, you know, when it comes to understanding really the nature of the of the issue. But what are some of those obstacles that, um, you know, maybe plain as day or some of them that may be more challenging that uh, nurses in the middle of their their day to day may not be picking up on that have created this vacuum for education. I, I think that that really is the key. You know, as a clinical nurse specialist, we always say sometimes that education doesn't really change practice, but systems do policies or system changes. But I think that this is the one exception because I do think that we don't learn much in our training to become a nurse about sickle cell disease for a lot of reasons. One is it's a rare disease. Um, 
And so during my career, I've had the opportunity to really delve a lot, work with hematologists, um, work with sickle cell patients, and to actually learn a lot more about the disease. So I know that ER nurses and ER doctors want to do the right thing all the time. And so why aren't they? One is they just don't understand the disease. Um, one of the examples of that is that we think only about pain because a lot of the time, most of the time, probably about 85% of the visits are for basic lucid crisis. However, what people don't realize is that these patients have a very shortened lifespan and most of them die in their 40s. They don't die of a pain crisis. They die of end organ failure. So they die of kidney failure. They die of pulmonary um, hypertension. <clears throat> they can die of sepsis. And so they have so many other complications. And it's really important that as ED nurses, we remember that. And you may come in with a pain crisis, but you actually may be having like acute chest syndrome. Acute chest syndrome is the number one complication and cause of death. So they're very complicated medically, and we just don't even learn about that. So I think that that's one really, really important area. Well, you're talking about that high level, the, the need for more understanding at the high level, but uh, you and I talked a little bit beforehand, there's really, it boils down to everything from triage through that entire course of care and doing all the things that ED nurses need to do, but not having that overarching understanding of what they could be seeing really impacts every step from the minute they walk in the door, or they come in the door through you know, the, the course of treatment, right? Right. We're, we're ER nurses, you know, we're used to, you know, very high heart rates, very high blood pressures, a temperature, like no big deal, right? We need to see really, really, really abnormal vital signs. Well, any kind of abnormality and vital sign in a sickle cell patient is a huge red flag. They can get septic. Um, tachycardia could be acute chest syndrome. So it kind of goes on and on. And we have to think beyond pain, but pain in itself is also excruciating pain. Patients describe it like all their bones are breaking. Um, and most of the patients with sickle cell, when we go back to kind of barriers and why it's hard to care for these patients, most patients do everything they can to avoid coming to the emergency department because of a past history of care that really reflects a lot of internal and probably implicit bias that nurses have and providers against sickle cell disease. So. There's a lot of data to show that there's just a lot of bias against these patients. There's a couple reasons for that too. One is, you know, the last of lack of education that we don't really understand the big picture of the disease. The other is that, you know, unlike a person with CHF who's coming in and may need Lasix because they haven't, you know, managed their disease, these patients are coming with acute pain and they need opioids and they know the dose of opioids and that it becomes a flag of you must be an addict. When in reality, the actual guidelines that I was fortunate to help develop, the guidelines say individualized pain protocols are what should be given. And so a lot of the research that I've done is implementation science. How do you get, and first of all, are they better? But how do you get individualized pain protocols into the electronic health record, both for the ED and for the patient? so that they can actually be believed that here is, because when you tell someone you need an opioid and you give them the dose, the assumption is you're addicted. And the last barrier then you add to that, now you have a 16, 18, 20 year old black male asking for opioids. It's kind of, uh, you know, 
that just contributes so much. And that, you know, unfortunately, the we talk about bias, but, you know, sometimes that's driven by the experiences of ED nurses under all sorts of circumstances. It's not indicative of that particular patient at times, because what you want are patients who can advocate for themselves and be able to explain what they're going through. Those troubles on the receiving end, if there's not being believed, is to what your point is, if the, the records can be sort of that ob objective look at what this patient's history has been or, you know, it, it takes it outside of the realm of, you know, being a seeker or, you know, having an addiction issue or things like that. So one of the, the areas that you talked about is, you know, recommendations and creating these guidelines and, and some of those important things that ENA has had an influence on, but you've also had an influence on ENA's work in those areas. Um, how have those helped to sort of chip away at some of those barriers or, you know, is there just uh, so much work to be done that, you know, every step in, is in the right direction, but the road is really long at this point? Well, I think <laughs> the road has been really long <laughs> and I think we have made a lot of progress. Um, and, and I would say the guidelines. So in 2014, but before that, several years before that, I was asked by the National Institutes of Health. National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute to be on the expert panel to develop guidelines and recommendations for the treatment of sickle cell disease. And I was asked to lead the acute complications chapter, which has things in it like acute chest and splenic, splenic sequestration and then vasoclusive crisis for pain. So I was able to work with a group of um, experts, expert hematologists from around the country, and the guidelines were developed. And so I think the guidelines um, say, first of all, this is a high-risk ESI2 patients. You know, they're a high-risk scenario and they have severe pain or distress that you cannot treat in the waiting room. It's sort of akin to cancer pain or to a kidney stone pain. They really do need opioids for it. And in the midst of an opioid epidemic, that is the other big, huge, huge barrier here that we're facing. That is the guideline recommended care from not only NIH, but also from the American Society of Hematology that published their guidelines in 2020. Um, so I was able to work with them. The guidelines um, also say, you know, you need to triage them high and the door to opioid is 60 minutes. And we can talk a little bit more about that because in the context of the crazy, awful, overcrowding situation, that is very difficult. But that is the that is the recommendation. And what I say a lot of times to help people get through this door to drug of 60 minutes is door to EKG of 15 minutes. Because I was an ER nurse and I was a fun spec at that time when TPA started. So, you know, a long time ago. But there was evidence to say that if we did it, if we got the uh, vessel open within 60 minutes, the outcomes for that patient were much better who was having an active MI. The only way to make that happen was to get an EKG in 15 minutes. Now, how in the world do you get an EKG in 15 minutes in a really busy ED? Well, we figured it out. And that is just not even an issue anymore. We get EKGs in 15 minutes all the time. That's a standard of practice. And then I ask everyone, how many patients a day do you have with chest pain in your ED? And we would have over 200 patients a day when I was at Northwestern. I would say 50 of them had chest pain because everyone comes in with chest pain. 
And you don't know who has an MI until you do that EKG and you see that SC elevation. So you have to get that EKG in 15 minutes on every single person with chest pain. How many patients do you have with sickle cell? Two or three a day. So I say that we can do this. I understand that we have to change our systems and our processes after we get over that initial bias, which we can do with some education and some training. Then we got to change our processes. Is there an equal metric here that, you know, from, you know, to get to that discovery a lot sooner when it comes to sickle cell patients? So that is the $1 million question, Dan. That is a great question. And um, for many reasons, that metric is not there yet. Although there are um, many of us working with CMS to try to get a metric um, of, of that door to drug in 60 minutes. But you know, the outcome in MI is mortality, right? And so that's what drove that outcome. And this is painful, pain relief. So, <clears throat> but it could be something more and you just really don't know. And a lot of times those other complications really evolve after they're admitted. So within the first 24 hours. So many patients actually with a vasoclusive crisis may be having the start of acute chest and you don't even know it and you won't see it until they actually get admitted, so we won't see it. But I think there's work being done and there should be metrics. The two quality improvement metrics that we do recommend that EDs use and a good place to start is ESI2. Are you at least triaging them at the correct level? Because if you're not, you'll never get that drug in 60 minutes. And then the second would be your door to opioid time of 60 minutes. So those can, should, and many EDs are using them. But as far as the CMS indicator yet, it's not there. And individual EDs, obviously, they have their own situations to account for because, you know, they, if they're a low volume, the chances of this occur, you know, having a sickle cell patient is probably you know, very rare, um, certainly ge- geography and, and all sorts of other things lead to the frequency of this, but it's sort of in the vein and, you know, I'm a lay person, so I'll make this analogy and tell me if I'm wrong, but um, it's sort of like the, you know, if your nurses are sometimes you know, hesitant around pediatric because they don't see a lot of pediatric cases, this is even more mysterious because there's not that same obviousness until you get a little bit deeper into the care, but if there's obstacles at the beginning of the care cycle, then you never know, right? So I guess that's you know, that's a long-winded way of saying that results may vary because of just the exposure to this, and but the education is valuable regardless. Um, it, you talk about a little bit, you know, what ENA has done, you know, to help support that education, topic briefs, things of that nature, and how can we continue to push forward the message that it can be better, it should be better, and here are some of the ways to do that. Yeah, ENA has been very good. There was a coalition that was formed called EDSE3, which is Emergency Department Sickle Cell Care Coalition. And that started in 2016. And ENA, so it's a group of professional organizations and government um, agencies. So ENA, ASAP, and it's actually funded by ASAP. Um, uh, Pediatrics, American Society of Hematology, NIH, Joint Commission is a member. So it's a big coalition and we meet to really try, the whole mission is improving emergency department care for sickle cell patients. Um, One of the things that we did was develop a decision support tool that's available on the ASAP website that any nurse (coughs) can get. If you just Google ASAP and um, 
sickle cell, the decision support tool will come up. And it's a really nice little tool, uh, you know, starting from triage to believing the patient, to opioids, um, to individualized pain plans too. Um, so I think, and your point is really good and that was a nice analogy about pediatrics too. If you don't see it and you didn't learn a whole lot about it, it's really hard. I do think, though, if we think about, you know, disparities and and ED's efforts around DEI in the United States, most of these patients are black and the care is just historically not good. And I do think, again, it's just because people don't know any better and it's opioids and there's an opioid epidemic and there's an overcrowding problem. So it is very much a perfect storm, but I think smaller EDs, any EDs um, can get sickle cell champions. And so getting education from someone is good. And then having a champion in your ED, whatever that looks like. When I went to Duke, I became, I had a small role as a sickle cell, as a sickle cell CNS. And I worked um, with the health system and the ED to develop nurse champions in sickle cell. So we would meet three times a year, do some education, and I think that that's really, you have to have somebody, there has to be a commitment. And I think there has to be a leadership commitment. So I love that ENA is supporting this and National ASAP is supporting this. So we have the national professional associations saying that we should be doing this. Now it needs to filter down to the individual EDs what ENA did in 2019 is I worked with two nurses, two ER nurses in North Carolina, and we wrote a resolution that was passed by like 86% at General Assembly. It was still the highlight of my whole entire career. Hmm. And the resolution said we need to disseminate the guidelines for treating VOC in the ED, disseminate existing education, and disseminate additional education. Um, so... Uh, I think that that's, you know, we just, we really need to keep educating and, you know, a champion program is great because that's kind of, you can be the person to, you know, make sure you orient your nurses on sickle cell when they come into orientation, et cetera. One of so, those pieces, one of those resources too, is the department, emergency department narrative. I get the name of it right. The emergency department narrative video that, uh, you know, ENA president from last year, Terry Foster was a part of. I'm really just kind of helping put uh, everything into context and in a relatively short amount of time. And th- is that just a good starting point when you're talking about finding these champions? It's like, let's just get familiar with it and using things like this video to really be that introduction. I think that would, that would be a great, that's great. Um, Terry Foster and Angie Alexander, who's a nurse from North Carolina, were um, interviewed and did a video that's going to be on the ENA website about caring for sickle cell. And it was just, um, it's a great video to watch. I think there's also another um, resource right now that's available. I think there'll be more resources coming from ENA, but um, <clears throat> we developed, a, if you go, there's a website, the nursing.do edu scd um, that website we developed years ago and there are very short powerpoints on that so there's ones on you know the perception of addiction there's one on pediatric pain on stroke etc um, and lots of resources on that website specifically for ed nurses and videos we actually um, 
filmed, there's eight videos on there and they're short. So that's another good place to start as well. Question I always like to wrap up when we talk about these clinical topics, especially one of these situations that there's just this, uh, there's a gap out there and trying to fill that gap. But what, what would you say is one or two quick takeaways for a nurse who's listening to this and says, maybe I want to be that champion. Maybe I just need to understand my own bias. Maybe I need to start to create some resolution in my own mind about what I can do differently. So what are a couple of those key, you know, key elements that you want them to walk away from this conversation with? Uh, I would love people to walk away and to just put on a whole new pair of glasses to see the patient with sickle cell. What you see is the person who comes in a lot, and we didn't get a chance to talk about that yet. So I do want to talk about that for a minute. There is a very small percentage of people that come in a lot, like 100 times a year, 200 times a year. And the percept that makes it look like that's the person with sickle cell. In reality, that is the very top, like 1% of people with sickle cell. So most of them are, are not coming to the ED. But when they do come to the ED, they get treated like the guy you see two or three times a week. And clearly we're not helping the guy who comes two or three times a week for payment. There's something else going on with that person. And I've had the opportunity to do research with these people as well. And there are a lot of social determinants of health. These are people who are not, don't have great family support. They um, probably have really, they do have bad disease. They're not able to work. There's usually transportation issues, issues with insurance, pharmacy, anxiety, depression. So they're very complicated people. And I think the other one that nurses know nothing about that was very surprising to me to learn, and I believe it really drives some of the super users, is neurocognitive deficits. And individuals with sickle cell, many have had stroke or they have silent strokes. And there is a lot of problems with executive functioning. And this is part of why they just they can't get it together. Sometimes there are personality issues with that where they get more angry. And so between the neurocog, the social determinants, those really facilitate, I guess, the frequent visitor. And that frequent visitor, I actually believe, is the number one barrier. We don't even think it's education or lack of education. I think it's when you see someone three times in one week, you're not helping them. We don't feel good about that. And we assume then again that it all feeds into this addiction piece. So I would say that gets back to, you know, learn a little bit and, you know, try to get a champion and think about, you know, take a look at the guidelines and think about what kind of initiative can you put in your ED, in the context, how can you make this important given the difficult crowding that you have? um, How how can you make it fit into making it a priority or at least a focus in your ED? How can you get it embedded in orientation and get with your leadership? So if I could say a second thing, but I'll <laughs> let you go ahead. I have one more. Well, go ahead with the second thing, because really what we're talking about here is getting away from the predisposition mindset on something that is tremendously complex because of all those hidden aspects. So yeah, you you're hit your second point here, because I think you're 
you're really leaving a lot of, you know, good, uh, you know, leaving a good bread trail here for folks to say, <laughs> what resources do I need to go look at, even just to get fundamentally under, you know, a fundamental understanding of what I could start to do differently tomorrow. So your second point, go ahead. The second point is leadership. You will need ED nursing and medical leadership support. And if you don't have that upfront, don't even try because you will get nowhere. Um, it has to become a priority for the ED leadership because then you can get support for how are we going to do education? How are we going to, um, how are we going to uh, put some QI indicators in for door to drug of 60 minutes and, ER, and ESI of two? the education, how are we gonna reach out to our hematology colleagues to make sure that we can get individualized pain plans written? Because the hematologist writes individualized plans. They put them in the chart. So then you need support from your EPIC teams, your EHR teams, and that all is leadership pieces. So the hematology connection is really, really big as well. The other thing you can do is, uh, reach out to them and identify a patient who could come talk to you at a staff meeting. That works wonders. You know, that, that just is an amazing kind of thing. But you got to have leadership on board to, to get those supported. Because the last thing you're going to need from them is support to change policy in the waiting room. Because if you're in a crowded place, you're going to need to give them opioids in the waiting room. And there are many nursing policies that will not let you do that. And they will need to change. It's just a, a lot to to kind of put together, and certainly it's helpful to have someone who's put the years into understanding this, but not just to understand it, but to put new ideas, new practices out there. And um, you know, just to recap a couple of things, you know, you mentioned the Duke website with a, a bevy of resources. Uh, we talked a little bit about some of the things that are on the ENA website currently, and that'll be coming to the ENA website. Uh, the video that we, we talked about earlier, the emergency department narrative, um, you know, something that's been on, so we put on social media this past week um, here on the ENA uh, platforms. So folks can go back and, and check that out if they maybe missed it, but uh, figured it was a good combination to, you know, have you talk about this a little bit, but also start to put some of those things out there. And I know there's a whole month dedicated to, to sickle cell awareness uh, that comes up later in the year that just another opportunity to really re-up on some of these key things that, uh, like you said, even the smallest step is, you know, is, is helping in some of these circumstances and, and people can choose and what makes the most sense for them individually. But getting that buy in, getting those collaborations, you know, across, you know, your ED, across your hospital, across associations and other partnerships. Um, there's a lot of people doing a lot to try to make this work. So I, I think uh, that's a testament to, to folks like you. So, Paul, I appreciate uh, you being a part of the ENA podcast. Hey, any final words you want to share? Uh, just my email, which is paula.tanabi at duke.edu. And, uh, you know, I'm very good with email, so I will answer you. And we have a lot of resources, and I always take a phone call and consult and try to help anybody do this. And it's difficult work because I do know that everybody really wants to be doing the right thing, even with these patients. And I can testify that Paula is really good on email. We exchange real fast as we were preparing to schedule this and to get our interview put together. So there's an endorsement for people to email you if they want to learn more and talk more about this with you. Paula, again, appreciate you being a part of the podcast today. Thank you so much, Dan. This was great. Thanks to ENA. That'll do it for this episode of the ENA podcast. And like we mentioned uh, through the interview, uh, reach out to Paula if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the resources that uh, she talked about, uh, particularly also on the Duke website. And like I said uh, earlier, go back to uh, ENA social media platforms from uh, earlier this week. 
where you can find the emergency department narrative video that uh, uh, was was co-sponsored with ASAP. It features you know ENA President uh, 20, 2023 ENA President Terry Foster and really uh, you know a nice piece that talks about uh, a, a variety of areas from uh, the ED, the ED care of patients with sickle cell and managing implicit bias and a number of other things. So ENA continuing to do its part to get that education out there. With all of that, I thank everyone for listening to this episode and hope you'll join us next time on the ENA podcast. To learn more about ENA or to become a member, visit ena.org backslash membership.